there's only so many supplies. But we're not there yet, but I'm telling you, it is really getting bad. Uh, it's it, Like I said, it's uh, twice as bad as it was during that last surge. As the holidays approach, public health officials and doctors say they anticipate a fresh coronavirus surge after Thanksgiving if people don't shelter in place. Their message to Rockfordians and residents of Northern Illinois is to stay home and wear a mask if outside travel is necessary. On Friday, Dr. James Cole, Surgeon-in-Chief at Swedish American, discussed the alarming spike in COVID-19 cases he is seeing now and that he expects to see after the holidays and what impact that may have on the readiness of the hospital systems and healthcare workers. Here is Dr. Cole's full remarks. The COVID-19 pandemic has provided unprecedented challenges to not only our hospital, but to healthcare systems across the nation. As you are probably well aware, there have been over 10 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States with, an about, with about 250,000 deaths. And to put that into perspective, that is more deaths than all of the deaths due to traumatic injury, including motor vehicle crashes, gunshot wounds, and stab wounds, plus all the deaths from breast cancer and colon cancer uh, combined. So this is not a trivial problem. And whereas I thought we had it bad during the late April, May peak, when we felt that we were pretty challenged and we were very challenged, we're twice as bad as we were at that time. We have twice as many COVID patients in our hospital. And whereas it's entirely true that only about five to 10% of people who contract COVID are sick enough to require hospitalization because the total number of COVID cases in the community has exploded, the number of patients requiring hospitalization is starting to saturate our hospital resources. Now, most hospitals will only staff uh, for, what, for about 80% of their hospital beds. And oh, by the way, people should not be looking at hospital bed trackers because the number of hospital beds on those databases reflect licensed beds, not necessarily actual beds. So if most of the time hospitals staff their facilities to accommodate 80% uh, of their bed space, but we've had, for example, 80 more patients, all with the same diagnosis, COVID-19, and in addition to all the usual patients that are admitted to our hospital with diabetic, ketoacidosis, heart attacks, strokes, traumatic injuries, and so forth, and now add another extremely complex population of patients to that, it outstrips our bed space, our staff, and our supplies. So what are we doing to combat that? Well, we're, we're struggling, but we have a active incident command center that continuously manages beds, bed spaces, stuff, and personnel. We actually have created bed spaces where they never existed before. We are actually in the process of creating uh, open bay wards in our conference rooms with disaster supplies from the state that are going to be here sometime today. We're staffing those beds with people from another hospital affiliated with us that we're, that we're moving them all here to staff those extra beds. We are pulling staff from the outpatient clinics to staff those beds. And we're basically doing everything we can by, to improve efficiencies in our operational workflows to accommodate all of these additional patients. 
COVID-19 patients when admitted to a hospital tend to stay longer than most patients with regular diagnoses. And for example, if somebody with COVID-19 is admitted to the ICU, whereas typical ICU stays are only a matter of a few days, COVID-19 patients remain at least twice that long, sometimes up to many weeks, consuming the most precious of hospital-based resources, which include ICU beds, ventilators, and critical care staff. And oh, by the way, there aren't that many board-certified intensivists in the nation, in the state, and certainly in this region. So we're basically pooling all of our resources, all of our knowledge, and doing everything we can to accommodate this massive surge of people with COVID-19. And whereas I've said from the very beginning, if public health officials have said from the very beginning, we could keep this under control if only everybody wore a mask, socially distanced, about six feet apart from each other and washed their hands, the compliance rate in our community and in the state in general is quite poor, as a matter of fact. And so because COVID-19 is so prevalent, and as a matter of fact, about 40 to 50 percent of people who contract the virus contracted from an asymptomatic individual, you can't trust anybody out there. People with no symptoms at all could be passing along COVID-19 with you. And so it's essential that we do something to stop this massive surge of COVID-19, lest we will absolutely overwhelm our system because we're at the base of saturation right now. And this can only go so long. There's only a finite number of beds. There's only a finite number of healthcare personnel. And oh, by the way, those healthcare personnel are getting sick as well. They're getting sick from patients, but they're also getting sick in the community from community-based exposures. So it's depleting some of our labor pools in this region. So you have to understand that everybody is doing the best we can, but they're exhausted. Healthcare workers are exhausted. You know, they're sweating away for 12-hour shifts, wearing these plasticized gowns and N95 masks, and it's just an, an immense burden. But they're actual real heroes. You know, they're really doing an immense job taking care of this problem that we have, which has basically been the greatest public health uh, uh, challenge in my lifetime. So therefore, I ask that everybody really think about the choices they make, okay? Think about the choices they make with respect to, do I really need to go to that social gathering? Do I really, is it really that much of a burden to wear a mask, which, oh, by the way, does prevent the spread of asymptomatic and even symptomatic COVID to another? And do I really need to be in close proximity to other people? You know, we, the holidays are coming up. We definitely want to get together with people on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And unfortunately, this is going to be a different holiday season. It needs to be a different holiday season for everybody because um, lest we seriously limit our, our, our exposure to our friends and our family across uh, county and state lines, uh, we're going to be in dire straits uh, as a community and as a, uh, as a, as a health care system. It's already happening, and it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, please make good choices and try to help us help you uh, stay well and uh, to not uh, succumb to the ill effects of COVID. And oh, by the way, COVID is not just a, uh, a one and done necessarily. Um, we're hearing a lot of reports of people that have lingering symptoms, waxing and waning symptoms that just aren't getting better and potential long-term complications of COVID that we don't even know about yet. Don't forget this disease 
is only nine to 10 months old. Like nobody ever heard of COVID this time last year. And so there are no long-term studies on COVID because it never existed. So to basically prevent yourself from being a casualty of what may be long-term complications of COVID, please make smart choices and avoid the contact and the exposure altogether. We don't have beds specifically assigned to just COVID patients because that number has been exceeded long ago. And what we have to do is continuously create new COVID beds. And when that threshold gets exceeded, we have to create new COVID beds. And so right now, every bed is a potential COVID bed, including those open bay wards that we're creating uh, downstairs. So COVID patients are not commingled with non-COVID patients. It just is not gonna happen. But don't forget, we're taking care of the entire community, people that, have ankle fractures, people that have uh, post-operative uh, recovery periods requiring hospitalization for something like uh, gallbladder or uh, hysterectomy or something like that. People that we know don't have COVID. How do we know that? Because we test every single patient in this hospital for COVID. We test every person having elective surgery within 72 hours as an outpatient uh, for COVID. We test every single admission for COVID. So we know the COVID status on every single person. And we cohort those with COVID, uh, in one or several areas at this point, and we cohort those without uh, the disease in other areas. So, you know, in that open bay ward, for example, those would be the people that are, are, are really not that sick. They, they definitely don't have COVID, and uh, they're able, they're probably only going to be in the hospital for a day or so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers in the entire state, it doesn't really help us if, let's say, downstate Illinois has 100 open beds, right? We can't just send those people to downstate Illinois. Uh, there's no transportation system to allow for that. We don't communicate on electronic medical records. We have no professional relationship with hospitals hundreds and hundreds of miles away, right? So the number of total beds in the entire state really has... It, it doesn't help us deal with the number of total beds in our region. Can you talk about what happens when space and resources do run out? Or if in the event that they do run out, what would happen? Yeah, so when spaces and beds do run out, then we have to just change our priorities entirely. So our priority is to care for the, the sickest of the sick, right? To, to care for the, the critically ill patients. And if we exceed the number of critical care beds available, we're basically gonna to have to make non-critical care beds critical care beds. And we're gonna to have to request more ventilators, which we actually already have done um, from uh, both the government and from the university. And we're just gonna to have to stop doing other things. Like last time when we uh, stopped doing elective surgery, that was very difficult for everybody in the community because there were a lot of people out there that just needed surgery that we were not allowed to do surgery on because we needed the beds for other reasons, right? Like I said, we're twice as bad as we are now, we, we, but we've gotten more than twice as good at managing COVID because we have different therapeutics and we, we know this disease now. So we're, we're on top of it immediately and we're getting better results quickly. But so we're turning these patients over faster like we never were before. But if those resources get outstripped, we're gonna to have to slowly focus and basically everybody's gonna, uh, that's admitted to this hospital will ultimately just be an ICU patient or a critical care patient. But if you don't have the equipment to make that happen, then you get into some very difficult decisions 
as to what do you do if more people require critical care support than an entire sector of the state can provide. So you've requested more equipment, ventilators, beds. Have those requests been granted from the government yes. and from the hospitals? Can you talk about how many you might have requested? Um, I, I actually don't know exactly. I think it's a half dozen, to be honest with you. But we have different resources that we obtained. And, and we haven't requested them because we've run out, but because we're being very proactive in every single aspect of this disease. So, you know, beds, equipment, monitors, uh, ventilators, and so forth. You know, just like a store owner, when you exceed a certain, you know, limit, you get more. And that's what we're working on right now. Are you seeing more patients um, being able to go back home in quarantine or more um, need to stay in the hospital like ICU? Both. Yeah, both. So the total number of patients in the community is exploding, right? It's, it's literally the curve, the rate of rise is almost a vertical line right now. So if only 5 to 10% of patients within that total number need to be hospitalized. But if the rate of rise is exploding and it's multiple times higher than it ever was before, 5 to 10% of that total number is going to require hospitalization. And, and that means more people in the hospital and more people out of the hospital. So is the issue more so not enough space and equipment or is staffing? Because you said earlier some of the physicians have gotten sick as well. So which is more of an issue? It's that? everything. Everything. Honestly, it's everything. Because so right now we are making it, right? We are creating spaces. We are creating people by moving them from other areas. And we are creating equipment by acquiring it from other sources. So we're doing everything to acquire more of everything that we need. But there will be a point when that limit gets absolutely saturated because there are only, there's only so much physical space. There are only so many people with a medical degree or an RN degree uh, in the state, in the northern part of the state. And there are only, there's only so many supplies. But we're not there yet, but I'm telling you, it is really getting bad. Uh, it's, it, like I said, it's uh, twice as bad as it was during that last surge. Did so, you anticipate surge? Now, has um, staff been getting COVID and been getting sick, or? Yes. Yeah, staff has been, you know, they're members of the community. They go to the grocery store. You know, they have uh, children in our, in our you know, school systems and everything else. And, and all the different ways where people can be exposed to COVID, um, it also affects people that work in hospitals, right? So, yes, we have people that have been exposed, that have, become, that have been sick that get taken out of our labor pools temporarily. Has there ever been a day where it was too full and you did have to turn somebody away? No. And then I was also just wondering, um, I've seen other reports, mainly national news, where they've said that um, people who are asymptomatic are they're having them work. We're not to that point yet. We're not to that point yet. We, we're not. So people that, uh, and I, I know what you're talking about, like the University of Michigan, for example, they are so saturated uh, with COVID that uh, they need to have their COVID positive, minimally or asymptomatic patients actually work. We're not there yet um, because I think we're pretty careful of this hospital. I mean, we're, we have a very, very um, rigorous mask policy here. You know, you even have to wear a mask as you're walking in from the parking lot. And we, we do our, our very best to prevent any sort of asymptomatic uh, carrier spread to others. But uh, we haven't had to go there yet, but I guess it's possible in the future we, we might have to. Can you talk a little bit about how people, um, after they've caught COVID for the first time, how they're not necessarily, you know, it's not one and done, how they're 
Yeah, sure. So like I said, we don't know everything about, about COVID. We don't know a lot about COVID because it's such a, it's such a, uh, a new disease, okay? So uh, it's impossible to do excellent prospective randomized trials on a disease that's only existed for 10 months. It's just not gonna happen. So what we're doing is we're gathering a lot of information that will be published in the future, not just we, but the entire scientific community. But what we are learning of is people that have waxing and waning symptoms uh, over the course of a long time. They may have, they may have, uh, they may feel like they're recovered and have a lot of energy. And then when they start kind of doing what they do, go back to their regular way of being, it, they realize that they've been set back for a while, right? Uh, and they just can't do what they used to do. And there's, of course, the long haulers, people with this court long COVID with the brain fog and the headaches and the intermittent fevers, muscle weakness, and so forth, that, that we don't fully understand yet. I mean, people months, months, months later still having these symptoms. And the only thing in common is they, had, uh, they were diagnosed with COVID-19 at some time in their course. So we're still learning this. This could be uh, an immune system problem. This could be due to the microthromboemboli, the little clots that we know form during COVID-19 and get showered into the microscopic vessels of the brain, the kidney, the gut, the muscular system, the, 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 the pulmonary cardiac uh, you know, interface that uh, allows them to not be able to exchange oxygen as well. And oh, by the way, down the line, let's say 10, 20 years from now, as we all have degradation in our normal function, our organ function in our bodies as a whole, you know, as 40 year olds become 50 and 60 year olds and so forth, and we normally have that functional rate of decline, I, I, I anticipate that we're gonna see an accelerated rate of decline in overall function in those who have had COVID-19 from all the reasons I just explained. When it comes to the vaccine, um, what's your message to people who may still have concerns when that time comes? I know there's a lot of folks who say they don't wanna take it, uh, what do you have to say to them? Yeah, so uh, I say take the vaccine, period. I mean, I don't know why people are so uh, a, a, a afraid of the vaccine. You know, yes, there are very rare instances of people that have had com complications of everything out there, of everything, of joint replacements, of cardiac stents, of pacemakers, of every drug, of every medication, blood thinner, and so forth out there, but they still accept that risk. When it comes to protecting the population, the public health, we need a, a substantial percentage of the population to become immune to this disease to prevent the spread, which is why I think that everybody, you know, needs to take the vaccine. I'm going to take the vaccine. I promise you I'll take the vaccine. When I was in the service, I took so many vaccines, vaccines to things you guys probably don't even know existed against these diseases, and uh, I, I had no problems. Yeah, every single day we talk about, uh, we, we, we brainstorm out of the box ideas and what we can do to improve operational workflows. And, you know, we, we've thought about bringing back the tent, you know, but we have actually now redesigned our triage system inside the doors because it's getting cold, right? So we, we still may bring back the tent, right? But there are no tents left, right? There are no Mavis tents left in the state, but we can acquire tents in other, via other ways. And, but of course we'd have to have this massive heating unit and have all the, all the fuel to fuel it and so forth and so on. But we are considering all kinds of out-of-the-box options if we get to this level and then this level and then this level, just so you know. So 
we, we, uh, we're very prospective on, on handling this, this pandemic. The Illinois Department of Public Health on Friday reported 15,415 new confirmed and probable cases of COVID-19 in the state, including 27 additional deaths. As of Friday afternoon, Illinois Department of Public Health reported a total of 551,957 cases since the pandemic began including 10,504 deaths. Winnebago County has recorded a total of 14,421 cases and 206 deaths. Register Star reporter Andrea Watson has more of this story on our website at rrstar.com.